0: Research Conversations with host V. Vale, brought to you by Research Books, produced in San Francisco. Today's guest, Diane DePrima.
1: Welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host V. Vale. I've been doing counterculture publishing since 1977 with Search and Destroy and Research Publications and today we took a little field trip to visit the legendary counterculture poet, writer, lecturer, um, all around artist, Diane De Prima. And We're at her home right now. She's got thousands of books and is a real inspiration in how over fifty years she's been able to maintain a very creative and definitely counterculture way of life. So we're very fortunate to have Diana Prima here. How did the process of becoming a poet start? I mean
0: I started writing when I was seven and I knew how to write.
1: How come? I mean just from school or what?
0: No, I remember what was happening was my Beloved anarchist grandfather and his wife were moving out of their beloved Bronx apartment where I'd gone to the rallies from and all that. And we were taking a walk the night, last night we were going to see them there. My parents had come up to help them get ready to move, taking a walk in the Bronx. And I wanted to remember the moment. But being seven years old, you don't. Think you're gonna? It never occurred to me to describe the moment, so I wrote a poem about the the stars or something, a little rhyming poem. But to that day, to, from to this day, I remember the stars over the Bronx that night and the the way the apartment buildings were lit from the street lights and all that. There was it was a part with tall buildings, and so I wanted to remember the moment, and I wrote this little poem. And to me, that's what was like. Uh, Impulse to try to hang on to moments of time. That was when I was real young. That was my first thing. Then, by the time I was in high school, I was at Hunter. Me and a bunch of friends were very into the Romantic poets—Keats, mm-hmm. Shelley, Byron—and um, especially those three. And um, which was not in in. It was really, really, really. Considered, they were considered lower than the low, because the New Critics, Eliot's, was reigning in the in the literary world. And my the people in my school were so intelligent that they also would get into whatever was in. So, except for the seven or eight of us, among whom was Audre Lord, who became a well-known poet. Except for those seven or eight of us, you didn't even mention the Romantics at school or anything. So, but by reading the letters of Keats, who goes very much into a poetic theory kind of, you know. And really, I was like about 13. I really fell in love with Keats. And um, by reading the letters of Keats, I don't know, one day it just struck me very hard. I write about this in my autobiography, too. It struck me very hard that this wasn't something I had to look up to from afar. This was something I could do. This was something I could be. And, you know, what I keep trying my whole life as a teacher to do is... Have people stop looking up to anything from afar? Just be it. Just do it. I mean, so I knew when I was 14 that I was going to be a poet. And I also knew that I was going to have... I cried. I knew that I was going to have to give up a lot of things to do it, that I wouldn't have the regular kind of life. Uh, I guess because I'd studied the lives of the romantics. They didn't have regular lives at all, but I don't know why. But also my grandfather had implanted something about what you give up for your ideals? So I knew I was never going to be one of those nice ladies with matched dishes. And all. I mean, I knew that at 14. But having made that decision, there was a lot of baggage I didn't take with me that a lot of the women poets and writers that I knew in the 50s were taking with them. They wanted to be writers, but they wanted their matched dishes, and they wanted to be with a po- writer but they wanted him to be successful. So I'd see these various people with writer friends of mine who were male mostly really wanting, you know, oh maybe if you sold that story to Cosmopolitan. You know, even in high school, actually, we all in our little group knew. Although some people went off and did straight lives after. And if you didn't have that baggage, life was a lot simpler. But almost every woman had it. And the ones that didn't, I had some poet friend writer friends in that group. You know, people always say, what happened to the women? It isn't as simple as we would just, you know, ignore that happened too. But, you know, it's like any prejudice of that sort, you just sort of you either give into it or you don't. And uh, I never got badly treated by the men writers in my scene. But I was also not on the make for one of them to be my husband and get rich. You know, I didn't want any of them. And once I once or twice, I, once I fell in love, and uh, but I I wasn't expecting that kind of life. There was there were a lot of um, there were women that didn't have that, but for them and really just wanted to do the art. But there were very few, and most of the ones that I met either were brought down by, um, I don't know how to say this, but the parent the parents and the rest of the society had still i mean a, a one woman died that i knew who was a um, a painter died in, of shock treatment in a mental hospital in pennsylvania she'd had an illegitimate child her parents wanted the child to raise it straight they the pennsylvania uh, shock factories we used to call them were not regulated and they would advertise We will return your loved one to you in three weeks, completely cured, and that meant cured of homosexuality, cured of sexual promiscuity. If you were a woman, I mean, lots of things they were going to cure you from. And this woman died there from too much shock. And there were many. There were women I remember wound up in Rockland State Hospital and things because they were just running around the village and sleeping with people and their parents. You know. You. Even when I worked at Napa State Hospital for the California Council of the Arts in the mid or late 70s, I met many women who were locked up there in the first place for promiscuity. So it didn't go away that fast. I see that you look surprised. but So there was that. And then other women that were more, more committed often were burdened with um, low self-esteem, or shaky background, which also gave them um, much more vulnerability than I experienced to getting hooked on some drug Mm -hmm. and sort of disappearing themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not blaming the victim here. I'm just saying a lot of factors were all working against us women artists. Most of them are still working against us. There's also the expectation if there's two of you in the house and you're both artists... The girl is the one who's going to get a job and so and get the rent paid. And the theory, the rationale was, well, it's easier for her to get a job.
1: Well, they can there pass have, easier. There are a lot straight. of
0: jobs out there for women. You can type. You can file. You know, what am I going to do? Go work on the docks. <laughs> but so very often, and I see that still in the younger generations, that you know, both of them, one's a writer, one's a painter. Well, the girls going to stay home and if they have one child she'll stay home and do child care or you can get your painting done while you're watching six kids can't you you know so I haven't seen that change that much although outwardly people think they've gotten liberated they still behave that way the girls the boys too but the girls are the ones that let them the women are the ones that let that happen you know so I'm not blaming the victim but you can you don't have to be the one that brings the bucks in nobody can bring the bucks in see what happens <laughs> something'll happen yeah so there were other there were a lot of factors and I address that because I've been asked a million times what happened to the women in the big generation where were oh, they where are they you know and the assumption is that except for you somehow they were all ignored and how come and they were to some extent but they weren't really all ignored a lot of them were Mary attempted and his way, I mean, he called it Four Young Women Poets, or for Young Lady Poets, but one of his earliest Totem Press books was, Diane I think, Diane Wachowski, Barbara Moraf, who went on to be a potter instead. I forget, two others, Rochelle Owens, I think, might have been in it, New York Women Writers. I mean, he did call it Four Young Lady Poets, but that was the terminology of the time. He asked me to be in it, and I didn't want to be a young lady poet, so I said no, <laughs> but I sort of had the feeling of uh, self-sufficiency. I can publish myself. Why do, I, why do I need to be a young lady poet? So, but there was attempts, and there were people published, and so on. A lot of people just, a lot of things. It was a lot of things. It was a lot of things at one time. It isn't easy now, but it was really not easy then, I guess. I mean, I didn't know this because I had no expectation of anything being easy. In fact, it was hard for me. It's been harder for me to learn how to not struggle. I'll give you an example. In the 60s, I lived at Millbrook with Timothy Leary and...
1: Richard Alpert.
0: Yeah, he was there part of the time I was there. Ralph Metzner was there part of the time oh. I was there. Um,
1: they all did, yeah, they all did this, what, what was it, the site? Psychedelic Book of the Dead or something? Timothy did that. Oh, Timothy. But I recognize his name's from that book.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, while I was there, he had, Timothy had gathered all these artists of different, of different mediums, writers, painters, and so. On. and what his idea was was to see what would happen mm-hmm. if all of us took acid about every five days and none of us had to do anything for a living. None of us had to go out and work or deal with the world, and he wanted to be the provider for all of us.
1: This is a big mansion.
0: It was a huge place, but um, it was a huge estate, actually ten square miles. Um, so he would go on the road and give his lectures and make big money, and he didn't, he wanted us all to just be there and just do whatever whatever came to us that we wanted to do. And this used to confuse me a lot. I would make a, a kind of like mild off the top of my head statement like, oh, gee, it'd be fun to try watercoloring someday. And the next day, this elaborate amount of watercolors would have been delivered to my room together with everything else. And the idea of giving up struggling, not having to worry about the rent, not having to worry about the kids. The kids had their own house on the estate that they played in with people watching them all day. Uh, You know, it was very hard. I noticed that, so I, I was lucky that I noticed early how hard it is to give up the habit of struggle. And you know you should be able to give it up when that's appropriate and go back to it without feeling bad about it if it becomes appropriate again. So I just wanted to throw that in there. That that can be a trap too, being a, a surviving artist. it's a tra- another tra- I mean, anything you take on as your identity, like we're struggling artists or we're famous artists or we're outré, far-out artists, or we're, once you put that other defining adjective on yourself, you've made yourself a little box. You know, I'm a beat artist. No, I'm not a beat artist. Oh, I'm a woman artist. No, I'm not a, I'm a gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, Martian artist. (laughs) It doesn't work, because you have to be, Jean Cocteau one time said in one of his prose books that It has to be a constant... The artist has to be like an acrobat. Whenever they've figured out what your shtick is, what you're doing, the critics, the public, whatever, you have to already have vaulted, pole vaulted into a whole other area of art. And I think that the have to there is more about not getting yourself caught or attached to a way of working or a way of living... As this is, you know, like, I only make black and white pictures. Well, Klein didn't want to make only black and white pictures. The last 10 years of his life, the gallery wouldn't carry any of the work. And he was making colored little beautiful gems of stuff and selling them in Southampton for a song to his friends. Not because he needed the money, but because he wanted to get them out there. But the gallery wouldn't show them.
1: Franz Klein you're talking
0: about. I'm talking about Franz Klein. Mm-hmm. But it could be anybody. It could be self definition or it could be somebody laying the definition on you. You only write mysteries. What do you mean you've written the great American novel? I mean Or, you know, you're a beat writer. How come Loeb is so mystical? You know, my long poem that I've been writing for thirty five years now, I think. Thirty four. You know, How come you're writing a mystical poem with all these allusions to scholarly things? You're a beat writer. Doesn't that mean... Or they still assume that Allen Ginsberg, because he's a beat writer, is not scholarly. So if you buy into any definition that you've laid on yourself or that they've, the world's laid on you about your art and who you are as an artist or how you have to live... And I'm saying at one point I had bought into I'm the struggling artist. And it was very hard to step out of that and say, oh, for at least this period of time, I can relax and just try stuff. I mean, I would have had to have been there longer than the six months I was there to really take advantage of what Timothy was trying to offer us.
1: So you were there for six months. So yeah, it was wonderful. Did you actually take a lot of LSD? Oh, yes, but really? not
0: as much as they wanted me to because it got boring after a while. So they'd bring me my every five-day dose. That was the only rule for living in that community besides that you were, that Timothy had invited you because you were a creative person, was you took your acid every five days. And I would just stash it, you know. I'd say, oh, thank you, and i put it away. I mean, how how often did you want to get high? I mean, it, was, it took me longer than five days to absorb the information I'd gotten, and I got a lot. I learned a lot. It was a wonderful thing, you know. And whoever's like denigrating all drugs is insane. That's, you know, every culture, every high culture has always had consciousness changing substances, and you knew every consciousness changing substance has to be treated with enormous respect but treat it in the right way and learn learning how to use acid was one of the things Timothy taught us which was very very important you prepare ahead of time you don't you're not going to be among you're not going to go to the supermarket in the middle of a trip uh, you're not you know you prepare ahead of time it's a, a sacrament truly you know you pre- give yourself enough time at the end to come back very slowly there's a period of time for imprinting where you can i one time put out great big boards of Sanskrit verbs and just stared at them a lot because I was studying Sanskrit. And this was a good way while I was imprinting toward the, that's a period when you're high and then you're back on the surface and then you're high again and then you're back on the surface. That's a time when you can learn stuff or get a habit. I mean, one person who imprinted at the kitchen table at Milburgh couldn't leave the table till the next time he tripped. He was there from morning till night every day, driving us crazy. So that isn't really. So he taught us that there was psychological structures, and every drug has its own. And I'm not saying all drugs are good, but there's a lot more of them that should be treated with some understanding and respect. I mean, I, I don't really. I have a really funny feeling about shooting anything, and I've. I have a very bad feeling about hard, what we used to call hard drugs, but the psychedelics especially, and pot and hash, you know, what I mean, these are substances that have to be respected, and not for like, let's get high and drive downtown, you know, but they are, they have a purpose, they're here for a reason. and. Uh, so on that level, Millbrook was an incredible learning experience. But no, I didn't take my at all the time. <laughs> I was writing. I was getting a book finished. I had to have some time to work. It was, it was very interesting. I'm really grateful for the time. And it really made me notice early that you shouldn't get hooked on struggle any more than you should get hooked on luxury. I was approached in Washington Square Park by an old Russian man named Nick Sakovsky, who was one of the social realist painters who had immigrated from Europe to the States because he was Jewish just before the Second World War. And he asked me if I'd come and model at his studio. And uh, I looked this guy over and I decided he wasn't about to leap on me. or do I, He was like gray-haired and... Very proper looking. He lived right off of Washington Square Park. And I said yes. And from there some of his other friends came by and they would all drop in on each other. There was this whole Russian and German, mostly some French, immigrant artist group in New York at that point. <clears throat> and they would pass models from studio to studio. People would like you or not. And so the wage, I still remember this, was three fifty an hour. Uh, the uh, minimum wage at that point was seventy-five cents an hour. So if you're being being paid in cash, three fifty an hour, handed to you, that's it. I wound up working twenty hours a month, not twenty hours a week, twenty hours a month, for my thirty-three dollar rent, and some basic food. I was living with others, so we all chipped in on the food. We ate very. We had oatmeal breakfasts and you know but there was a lot of cheap like meat and so on to be had like lamb chops were 29 cents a pound you know and so uh, pulling in 70, 70 to 80 dollars a month at an hourly wage of 350 an hour meant that I had almost all day most days of the week I'd spend half about the half the day studying because I was like reading my way through the canon of poetry and the ABC of reading by pound and mm-hmm. In, in his other, just like you read everything Burroughs mentioned. And I was teaching myself, like, I read some Homeric Greek. I I studied classical Greek, Greek at Hunter, but I was reading earlier Homeric Greek. I had a grammar, and I, I would learn the poetics of different languages by sounding them out. I never got to the point where I really learned any Eastern languages, but at one point I even had a pretty good reading ability with the Cyrillic alphabet. So I used to get bilingual books and study about half the day, getting my craft. I knew I was a kid, I knew I needed a craft in poetry. There's a lot to learn. And then the other half of the day I'd spend writing. You know, and it would it would vary, but usually I'd write in the morning. I'd have we'd all have whoever lived in the house would have breakfast. I write about this too. We'd all have breakfast with cold water fat flat. There was free wood around the corner. Because we were America was exporting automobiles in those days and they were crating them there to ship so there was all the ends of this wood, some of it hardwood that they put out free and I would go with a shopping cart every day when I woke up and get about half a block away but it was uphill get about five shopping carts of wood into the house for the day and then make breakfast and then write all morning then um, we'd have some kind of lunch probably I'd have some I always had a soup on the stove out of whatever was cheap and around. And then uh, in the afternoon I'd study. Often I'd go out to write all morning if the weather wasn't too bad because the Hell's Kitchen apartment was a few blocks from Central Park. Mm. So I'd go climb. I had favorite rocks that I liked to write on or certain benches and places. And and then I'd come home and I'd have lunch and study and then in the evening people would gather. Mm. But they'd be at Art Students League or they'd be at uh, ballet theater dance school, or whatever they were doing, all the people in my house were working artists, and so we didn 't need much, and we didn 't have much, but we didn 't know we didn 't have much we had everything i mean we didn 't have a phone, we never had a phone in those days you, you were supposed to sort we felt felt we we should be able to sort of know psychically if somebody was about to come by or where your friend was if you wanted to meet up with them on the street and often that worked Some, and I had some very special uh, little amenities like, for $3 a year, if you were a studying painter, you could get a membership to the Museum of Modern Art that allowed you in free to all their movies. So um, Rayfield Sawyer would sign every year one of the, that's a Sawyer painting of a portrait of me over there when I was 30. Um, he would sign every year that I was studying painting with him. I'd buy my $3 card. And so I saw my way through. They would do series, like all the films of Carl Dreyer, the man who made that Joan of Arc, or all the films that Gre- Gre- uh, Greta Garbo was in, or all the Von Stroheim-directed movies. And I gave myself an education in classical film because it was a good break from study. You'd walk to the museum, see the movie, go back home and keep studying so I had those kind of amenities, and then there was a wonderful, just built, very warm, very comfy library across the street from the Museum of Modern Art, at that point just recently built with rugs and soft couches, and I'd go there if the house was too much to keep heating, because the house was hard to heat, and uh, go from the movie and study there or right there in the afternoon, and then walk back to the house. So it was very luxurious kind of not having anything. Plus, you know, our friends were like painters at the Art Students League. There were people from uh, Art Actor Studio. They were people from Ballet Theater School. We, all, we had lots to say to each other. We had lots to... I wrote my, the first thing that got published, the 13 nightmares that were in that book I mentioned. Uh, sitting on the steps of Art Students League, waiting for my friend to clean his brushes so we could go have our 20-cent date nut bread and cream cheese sandwich chock full of nuts. Together for lunch was twenty cents, and then ten for coffee. So that's how you got by. I don't think you can get by like that so great now. I mean, even if six kids who were all artists were taking a place a flat together in San Francisco, I don't think they could get by each working twenty hours a month. Because, like, when you think of a thirty-three dollar rent and three fifty an hour wage. You have to multiply that out. How big would your wage have to be now to meet the ratio of what your rent is? That wasn't $33 each. That was $33 for the place. I had $70, I had $70 a month coming in. Hey, you know. And I could have worked more for the painters. I just They just knew and respected that I was an artist and that's how much I wanted to work. But you got lots of perks like Raphael Sawyer reciting Pushkin to you in Russian while he painted. Even if you didn't know a word of Russian, you're soaking in this beautiful sound, you know.
1: I know in, in the 50s, in North Beach, I mean, they had the best coffee you could get. No,
0: you know, by the time the coffee houses were really in the village, I was already in Hell's Kitchen doing this apartment i have just been describing, the cold water flat. And the coffee up there was just cafeteria. Okay. It wasn't really... The, but the youth, you know, the energy... I mean, we would... Go to that. People would go to their painting class or their acting class, and they'd do some auditioning or whatever. And still, we'd gather, have our soup at night, and then we'd all be out on the street playing. You know, we'd go to Central Park. We'd go to some. We'd go downtown here, miles at uh, Cafe Bohemia. We'd we'd go to some bar uptown and talk to other artists that we didn't know that were just having to be out. I mean, so we had the energy to do all that. Plus, it was partly just. It was youth, but I think it was also support, because there was so many of us wanting to do something in some art and idealizing it, you know where you weren't going to quote sell out, you had to do this thing, and but nobody expected to make their money from it. That's the thing. you know later, I learned the art and all the various not the art, but a lot of the craft of offset printing. And I would use that to make my money instead of a modeling when I was older. But we always expected to have a trade of some sort. Or some of the guys that weren't like living off their girls, and most of them weren't, but some of them were, um, guys that would would ship out, merchant marine, make a bunch of money and then stay home and write. Or paint or whatever, you know. So we didn't expect that. We didn't feel entitlement as artists, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But on the other hand, we weren't going to be stopped. Even Philip did the ranger fire ranger thing in the mountains. Philip Whalen mm-hmm. and so on.
1: Uh, I mean, these jobs paid pretty well, actually. But they just yes, wouldn't they did. work them full time.
0: Yes, no, you didn't have to. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's also hard. I've noticed with people that are my students and could get by on somewhat less. People aren't sympathetic to you working less than full time. Like a student that could like that wants to write more and could get by on the amount she would get if she worked four days a week in this clinic or this whatever it is that she's being a typist or a receptionist. They're not going to be sympathetic to you doing that. or People aren't offering many part-time jobs where you go in from one to five and you say, I'll write every morning before I go in. They used to have all that. There was a lot more, even though in a lot of ways it was more rigid, in those ways there was more flexibility. No... Companies, I guess, it wasn't the big corporation world that it is. Companies didn't feel like they owned you, or they had the upper hand in that way. I mean, they were stupid in many other ways. One of my friends got fired because she wasn't wearing a girdle to work, and they thought it was terrible to be able to see that she had two cheeks to her ass. <laughs> they called her in the office. They said, "Will you please wear a girdle every day?" And she said, "No." <laughs> but so there was, but there weren't. There was more flex time, we would call it now. There were ways you could get around where, you know, you could say to somebody, I have a friend who could, is capable of doing this job and we'd like to split it. Will you give it a try? Hmm. All of those things I, I experienced among friends earned a living most of, most of the years. I still, I mean, I'm still more than willing to do other stuff than my writing. I mean, I'll take in teaching in schools and universities too many meetings, too much politics. So I have private students in some years. There's more of them in some years. There's less. We do a nine-month course each time. It's a commitment for nine months. So, you know, but I have a lot of, different, I think of it as a lot of different legs on the stool or on the table. You know, I still do psychic reading and psychic healing. Not healing, I haven't done that in a while, but guided visualization work. Tarot reading, all that stuff When I want to, I'll put out a note to my people That I've done that and say I'm available from March till May And then I'm not again Or I'll, you know, edit Or help rewrite something Or I'll I don't expect that one thing Is going to work all the time You know And I don't expect That my books are supposed to support me Which is lucky, because they don't (laughs) I did get a period of time once when I was writing recollections of my life as a woman, uh, for uh, Viking Penguin. I got an advance uh, two years. I just wrote that book and wrote wow. other stuff. But the rest of the time, I've always worked. Wow. You know, on the road, going on the road and reading, I consider that just as much work. I mean, you're, you're supposed to think of that as you're doing your art, but you're not. You're just on the road reading and being available. It's nice to be available to others, people who want to talk to you and all that, but, you know, I don't think I do that much writing on the road. Well, I do, but some, it's, not, it's not like this is my craft. I'm a reader of poems on the road. My, cra- my craft is my books, my words.
1: Well, I'm sure that you're an expert at interweaving art in life. Let's it that way. <laughs> Well, I had fun. I mean, you kids. try to make even a, every reading kind of a, somehow a work of art, too. Or, oh, of you know course, I mean. of
0: course, of course. Performance is its own world, its own thing. Yeah. It has its own skills. So what you do for money or how you keep it together on that level, it's whatever, you know. It's what it changes. When there was that uh, wonderful art council, California Art Council that had Peter Coyote and Gary mm-hmm. Snyder on it, I was getting some money in Point Reyes for teaching free writing classes to the local community. I was living in Marshall, population 50, elevation 15 feet, it said on the sign. <laughs> and I would teach in Point Reyes. And the art, they didn't pay a lot, but the art council paid artists in rural communities to make classes available for free to the local people. They paid, <coughs> the fee for me to have a Xerox machine in the back of the local bookstore for my students, myself, and everybody else to use for free. They paid the rent on that Xerox machine for the town of Point Reyes. They paid somebody else's rent on a little space for a community uh, photo, um, place where you could develop your photos and all that. So you pull in a little here, a little there, and that, in, that, in those days, that was part of my money, was working for the, that art council was a really interesting and inspired thing for a little short while. And then, you know, I haven't seen a grant since 1980 when I think the NEA was harassed by the Heritage Foundation for having given money to writers who also wrote something that the Heritage Foundation considered pornography. Because I got a call from the NEA, they said, could we please have a letter saying that We gave you money for your poetry, but we didn't give you money for memoirs from Beatnik. I'm not saying, that's the reason why I haven't had a grant since then. But I'm saying that since Reagan came in, I haven't seen a penny of money from anywhere. And I never, I mean, I only got NEAs and some small things, grants from small institutions. I've never had a Guggenheim. I mean, I think I only applied three or five times back in the old days, but... Or any of those things. Yes. So you, it's not a question of like you have to, you have to do it one way or another way. Other people get those things and can write on them. That's more power to them. You know. It's like, uh, I think the part of the uh, the spectrum that I write from, politically, and class-wise also. Class is a big thing that we don't talk about right. in the arts in America, and in other ways as a woman and being too open about how I behave. And so, on. and the fact that is, I don't have the decency to be like killing myself with alcohol or being full of remorse or full of um, horrible neurosis. I've enjoyed it, my life. You know, I think those have all worked against me as getting grants or you know, or getting into you know being an establishment writer. But it doesn't matter. You know, you can't control inspiration, and you can't um, you can't say, well, today I'm going to write this inspired be- You can always work on something that's already written if you want to work every day, but in terms of when the work wants to come, Robert used to call it the visitation of the persons of the poem, Robert Duncan. And yeah, Duende, Jack Spicer called it dict- Taking Dictation. Um, the work that comes that way is the, for me, that's the, that's the cream. That's the only work that's really, really important. Um However, I also have write, written a whole lot of poetry from an idea. And I'll still have to wait, lend the example as the revolutionary letters. Mm. I wrote those as street theater because we were going out around the time that Martin Luther King was killed. We were going out in a flatbed truck with amplifiers, with musicians, street theater people. This was New York, but it was similar to the Mind Troupe. It was that period. Uh, not as great of course but the same kind of thing and um, poets and we were reading in Spanish Harlem we were reading on the Lower East Side we, and so on and I found that my more the, most of the poetry I'd written was too intellectual to present on the street to people who had not read and I started writing the revolutionary letters as poems but also as as street theater, theater. Yeah. yeah And I, so when I say I write from ideas sometimes there's something that strikes me I say, Oh, I wanna put that in a revolutionary letter. Then I wait till the words start wanting to come, but it's not like pure just inspiration in that case, it's a mix. Right. And but most of most of the work that's great is just it comes comes through you and it's coming and i I've written poems in Loba that are very, very, very just coming through me while some kid was climbing over me because we were driving to the airport somewhere and Though I wasn't driving, somebody else was driving, but they, I had all these other things going on, I'm having a conversation. It's like my head split off, and part of it kept writing the poem, and part of it was dealing with the world. Other times, that you're free and it just comes through. That's stuff you can't control. You can make room for it, though. When Loba, my Long Poem Lobo was coming thick and fast when it first happened, the first um, 200 pages came in a, about six years. And... Um, what I had part of that time, I had young, young kids. Mm-hmm. I had somebody coming three mornings a week mm-hmm. to watch the baby, who was an infant, and to deal with the house. That is, answer the door or the phone. In those days, there weren't even answering machines much. I don't think seventy-one. I started that poem, and somehow the subconscious would know that uh, that it would have free, it would have free reign at certain points. So the the poem, it wasn't always, but sometimes. A, The poems would just pour through at that point. I'd have various techniques that I used to kind of invite them, like images that were involved in the kind of stuff I was working on in my long poem. I would have around and I would play with collage of those kind of images and so on until I began to hear the words in my head or until the basic rhythm of this next urgent poem started to sort of be in my body and then it would just write itself. And those, those notebooks, I mean, there's hardly any changes. There are a few, not many changes. Usually the changes, the revisions, are where your attention breaks and you're not staying with what you're calling the duende. You're not staying with it. Something's, you're pulling back in some way, and then the language will get awkward and you have to go f- work on that little spot later. But those poems mostly just come whole. They can be very long and come whole. But that's like a muscle you build. At first, your attention won't hold very long. You won't stay with that kind of dictation very long, and then as time goes on, you're willing to stay longer and longer. So, yeah, that's, there is that work, and then there's all the rest of the work. And Suzuki Roshi, who started Zen Center once and they're both good, only it's important to know the difference.
1: I think there have been kind of at least three more or less movements of mass, counterculture in America... In the 20th century, I mean, for me, it started with the, the beats, uh-huh. the so-called beat movement. Uh-huh. And then, of course, there was the 60s psychedelic hippie movement. Uh-huh. And then, for me, in the 70s, the punk rock uh-huh. movement, which is pretty international. Uh-huh. All three were, actually. And, um, and when I uh, was very young, I was influenced by um, HAL. I mean, it reached uh-huh. the tiny town uh-huh. I grew up in. And uh, the Life magazine on the beach. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was very mm-hmm. influential on me because it had wow. pictures of how people lived.
0: Mm-hmm. Without furniture.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: First of all, I want to say that I count a movement before that. I was talking to a man last night who was like seven years older than me, and he said, oh, I was born between the bohos, the bohemians, and the beatniks. And I remember some of the bohemian movement prior to the beatniks when the only oddball characters around the village really were hanging out at the, uh, I think it was the Waldorf Cafeteria on 6th Avenue. It was Maxwell Bodenheim and his whole group of people. So I was waiting to see which three movements you were... You, and I said, okay, I know he's going to say beat, and I know he's going to say hippie, but who else? Because, you know, I, yeah, and then the punk thing, which, of course, my daughter was, and Dominique was with a punk band called The, the Appliances here in San Francisco for a while. And, but, um, yeah, there was also the, you mustn't, you were too young, but you mustn't forget the Bohemians.
1: But they must be underpublicized. How come yeah. I don't know more about I them? I think
0: they were expatriates who came back later. I think that may be the story of a lot of them. They were the old guys on my scene. Wow. When I first, when I was 18 and first started, left school and left home at 18 and started to be in the village. But even earlier, when I was going to high school in Manhattan at Hunter, and I would go down to the village when I was 14 and... There were two things. They were all Italian coffee shops. They weren't for beatniks. They were for old men to play pinochle in, and they'd play opera, and I would go there and have espresso and write. And there was the Bohemians. No, there were three things. There were the old ex radical or still radicals who had been in the Spanish Civil War. And they were, you know, older people, but many of them still living kind of like, Bohemian style lives and like their daughters i mean, I would be friends with one of their daughters. I'd stay over a house, meet the mom. He listened to those old songs of the Spanish Civil War. The mom and the daughter would both come to the breakfast table with their lovers, you know. <laughs> and the daughter being a teenager maybe or twenty or something And so I there were three three bunches of people prior to the beats that I remember as kind of nurturing. And then at the same time and just at the same time as the beatnik thing, and maybe just a little prior to it, there was a, some really seriously radical folk singing. This was way before mm-hmm. Dylan, you know. And there were people who had been influenced by Seeger. In fact, I remember um, being at uh, all-weekend all Hootenanny, where everybody was madly having lovely orgies by the firelight, uh, on the other side of the river from where... Um, Seeger lived on one side, and this this folk singer and uh, young folk singer and his dad and all that lived on the other side of the river. And there was a lot of coming and going. It was a huge gathering. I mean, for those days, which I'm talking maybe '53, '54. So all of those things were going on. And it did isn't like the beats arrived out of out of a vacuum. Oh, here we are, you know. And um, I just wanted to sort of say there was fertile ground. It was like sort of forgotten because. McCarthy had suppressed everybody from around the Spanish Civil War and all those things that was going on and so there were so everything was sort of a little underground and there was there weren't a million bohemians, but there were enough old guys to say, "Yes, this is a possible life you know and um and so on, so there were all these things happening. the folk singers were more my age, but the other groups were older people and um, so then you know. You want to know about Burroughs? I can't remember when I first met Bill. I met him around 62 or 63 in New York. We had a theater called the New York Poets Theater, me and my husband of the time, Alan Marlowe. And uh, Bill read for us, uh, did a read. Our theater was like we did plays on the weekends. During the week, we did uh, there was a night of, of experimental dance, one of experimental music, and one of movies. Jonas Mekas was showing his movies at our place. We all got busted for a Jean Genet movie, Chant d'Amour. And um, during those days, we would have poetry readings on Sunday afternoons. In other words, the plays would go Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. So right in the set of whatever the play was at the moment, people would read their poetry, and he did a reading with a tape, one of his early things where he was reading, and there was a tape, of Dutch, Dutch Schultz's last words. And I'm not sure I, whether it was Alan. Alan must have first brought him to our house. I think it was when Alan had just come back from India. And I, he brought him over, and Bill Burroughs was immediately enamored of my bisexual husband, Alan Marlowe and um and that whole he and alan started running with Burroughs and hunky and experimenting with more drugs and um and bill was on the scene you know but i was kind of invisible because he was interested in alan but when i met bill again a few years later at naropa we got to be pretty tight we were we were good friends and you know all his stuff i didn't experience any Serious misogyny from him ever. Oh, I, I was invisible at one point because he was chasing my partner. But that doesn't necessarily misogyny. That's just whatever that is, you know. And like we had a, a free marriage where he, we were both sleeping with anybody we wanted to. I didn't do much of that because I felt like I couldn't give a lover the kind of attention that I should, because I had three kids as well as this crazy husband. I had three kids by then. Only one by this crazy husband, two previous. So one with the Mary Baraka and um, my first child. I had 57 when I wanted a kid, but I didn't want a man. <laughs> Which in 57 was not how you behaved, but <laughs> that didn't matter too much. Oh. Well, about Bill? had um, ROPA.
1: What did he teach, creative writing? Or I don't what?
0: remember what he taught. We taught, no. what, taught ourselves. Whatever you, know, we you taught want our,
1: Ourselves.
0: Yeah, we taught how to... <laughs> Free your mind and do what you want, you know. I mean, but I, I don't think I went to his, I went to his le, his performance lectures, but I don't think I went to any of his class things. Some right. people I dropped in on. But I, but I remember that um, we were in this, I wrote about this, there was a little piece that they did at, the, at Bill's Memorial at Art Institute. Mm. I wasn't in town, but I, they taped me ahead of time for it. Um, we were in a uh, we i remember a a uh, séance we went to together that you know he was like he wasn't the organizer of it I mean, that was a woman who was a poet who was a friend of Robert Duncan's a woman named Helen Luster but um, bill was invited i was invited some other people were invited and people were sitting around i mean this is new age bullshit nothing's happening here and bill stood up went to a certain spot in this small Naropa apartment because we were given these tiny little student quarters and he said we have to erect a column of light right here pointed to a place and um, I don't know what other people got he and I got a lot of stuff and um, compared notes somewhat later and so So he and I had a bond on the level of magical work and stuff that he didn't talk about with too many people I don't know if he talked about it with you much but like when I would visit him at his house sometimes he would show me he had these 19th century books about pulling energy from the atmosphere for healing and stuff like that. that and there's one of them I would do like to get. I don't remember its title, though, so I can't tell you. I'm sorry. But um, I have it written down. Um, we would, he would show me like a healing machine that he was working with, with. He would put the photo of who he wanted to work on in this thing, and it was a contraption built to draw power down and directed at this person through the through the connection of their photograph, and he said, "You know, it's much easier to heal animals than people because they don't they don't have any resistance. They have no second, so no hidden agenda that keeps them from wanting to be healed, the way humans do." And he was so tender about. It. I mean, I I saw Bill as this incred, incredibly incredibly tender. Um, horribly intelligent, as you know, so intelligent that it must have been hard to be around people. And, you know, all of that would disappear, including any of our kind of talk, as soon as another person entered the room. Mm -hmm. And he'd be pretending to be drunk and saying clownish, stupid things and trying on hats. You know, and people would go, oh, that Bill, you know, what a joker. But um, I really, you know, I, I think he was the heart of that whole crowd. He was the heart and soul of, the, of Alan, Jack, Gregory, all those people, who, by the way, is a very small piece of what the Beat Movement was or what was going on. I don't know if you want to call it the Beat Movement. I think you can call it the Beat Movement if you think of the Beat Movement as a, a kind of like communal effort to expand the boundaries of what, what goes in the arts and what goes in consciousness. If you limit it to anything else, it's that's bullshit because... There are so many kinds of, I mean, is the, is the San Francisco Renaissance included or not? You know, is the, what about the Black Mountain people? They start splintering it all up, but it was one thing that was going on. Mm-hmm. And the Gregory Allen and so on are one part of it, but they're not, they were the ones that liked to get publicity and get out there that way. So that's the one that everybody thinks, that's the group that everybody thinks is the whole thing. You know, and they were my friends and I love them, but they were only a piece of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. There were many other things going on. they all were thrusting in the same direction what How far can you push the envelope in the arts? How far can you push it in consciousness where what are the frontiers? Where can we really go with the mind? you know where does the mind what's the mind willing to do it's It's infinite. We have this infinite tool in our disposal and we and we were in a period where we were willing to like push the boundaries of it and now people are so scared that it's ridiculous but um so you know, Bill and all that—that that was part of it.
1: I wonder how, through all this turmoil or seeming turmoil, <laughs> you managed to raise how many children? Five. Five. I mean, was there? Was a? What kept you centered? I mean, responsible, all that.
0: Well, centered on the work or centered on the kids?
1: Just being able to keep it all together, economically and oh, creatively.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I wasn't, there's, it took nothing to know that I was going to keep writing no matter what. I mean, I knew that. I mean, I just always work. Yeah. you know, whether I had kids or not. One of my daughters a few years ago said to me, and she was about 30, I'm so mad at you because I never knew if it was okay to go in your room or not because I didn't know if you were writing or not. I said, that's, how, that's the life of being the daughter of a writer, you know. <laughs> but... um I, there was no question about the work and the centering on the work there was no nothing in my life was ever going to stop that i mean that since i was 14 that was just it uh in terms of keeping it centered with the kids well you know they have their own built-in ways to make you pay attention plus also you love them so much you know but what i was interested in was each one's differentness separateness individuality giving them space fighting the world, the schools, and so on, enough so that they had space to be who they were. And they have. They've turned out they're wonderful, and they're all very different. You know, Although most of them are, have some kind of art that's part of their lives. Two or three of them, it's their main thing. They, when I was 14 and I decided I was going to be a poet, I knew that that meant right then starting and writing every day. Hmm. And I wrote every day and now uh, you know at some point maybe 20 or 30 years into it 20 years into it anyway i wasn't really writing every day but i mean there hardly ever a day goes by without but it's not like something i have to plan in i write a, i wrote i think i wrote the, this in my book but on the radio once i heard an interview with pablo casals mm. and the reporter said mrs casals why do you what do you interpret Attribute your greatness or some stupid thing. And Mr. Casals said, "Um, every day since I was 12, I play all my major and minor scales. And the guy's going very blithely on to his next question, sort of like what color shoes does your wife wear or whatever he's going to ask. And Casals all of a sudden thundered at him interrupted the question and said, did you hear me, young man? Every day since I was 12, I played all my major and minor scales. He didn't care about the reporter. He was trying to get it to some young yeah. artist somewhere. Yeah, you know. So it's like that. I mean, there is a craft. You never stop learning it. And you're on the lookout for what's going to give you the next piece of it. up to a certain point, you can be guided. Like in my 20s, I read all these people that Pound pointed to. I read some Homer in Greek. I I had already read, done a lot of Latin. I read some Dante as much as I could in Italian. I read, I knew some Provencal and investigated troubadour poetry. I did that kind of thing. I read my way through Chaucer and almost failed my one year of college because they were doing a survey course of English literature. And when I found Chaucer, I said, wow. And I spent the whole term (laughs) reading Chaucer and they were reading, I don't know, the, the Age of Enlightenment and I'm still reading Chaucer. Um, there was a year in, in the 70s when I only read Blake mm-hmm. and it was like wow I got to find out more here so you find what's going to give you the next piece of the information that you need as an artist and you just drink it in and um, you know that means there's a book I read at the kitchen table there's a book I'm reading in the bathroom there's a book I'm reading before I go to bed there's you know as well as taking chunks of time when you don't have chunks there's like constant I turn on the computer when I wake up because I don't know when I'm going to want to write. I turn it off when I'm going to sleep. Plus I have my notebook. I'm never far from my notebook. Poems tend to be handwritten by me, mm-hmm. not typed. So discipline you know, you have to, the people think of it as a negative thing or like it's it's against your free will, or your, you know. But you know, you can only your free, your free will as an artist, is only goes so far as your craft goes. The thing that wants to come through you, has to come through whatever tools you've acquired. You know that means what you've what you've learned to is studied as well as what you've what you how you've grown your developed your ear and your musicality and all that. None of which can be really taught, although you can point in a, in a class with students and say, listen to how Wyatt does that. Look at the vowels. What did he do there? I don't know how that, it became so bright in that poem at that point. But it's almost like something switches phone in your brain and you're seeing light when those vowels happen. Mm. But you can't really teach ear, but you can, people can find out how to, what they're going to go to to learn. Who's, who's going to show the... You have to keep looking for them where the next piece of your information, craft information is going to come from.
1: Well, all, all this um, so-called discipline work makes it possible to be even freer, I think, Absolutely. in your imagination.
0: Absolutely, because your imagination has you as its instrument, and you've got to provide it with as many strings to play on as possible. You've been listening to Research Conversations with host V. Vale. Today's guest, Diane De Prima, brought to you by Research Books.
1: Thanks for listening.